calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Heart of the Ronin, Volume 1 of the Ronin Trilogy. Written and produced by Travis Heerman. Voice talent by Danielle McCarville and Zeus Legion. For more information, please visit TravisHeerman.com. This novel contains violence and mature themes. Listener discretion is advised. Chapter 3. Not to borrow the strength of another, nor to rely on one's own strength, to cut off past and future thoughts, and not to live within the everyday mind, then the great way is right before one's eyes. Hagakure. Kenishi lay under a rock outcropping on the forested hillside, wrapped in his meager blanket. The spring night was cool and quiet, and he was well concealed. He felt Akau's warmth through the blanket as he lay beside him and smelled the warm, earthy scent of the dog's fur as the animal slept. He looked up through the bamboo leaves at the great black inverted bowl dusted with silver that was the night sky above him. He waited for sleep to come to him, and he thought back on the day's events. How could some people be so cruel and others be so kind? He had done nothing to provoke the response he had received in that village. Never before had a village constable reacted with such hatred towards him. It had been a humiliating experience. That humiliation had angered him, led him to provoke the duel. As he thought about the duel itself, he realized that it had been easy. His training had taken over and his actions had been effortless. He knew now that his victory had never been in question. At that, he felt a surge of pride. Takenaga had been a good swordsman, but not a great one. Kenishi's teacher had been great. His sensei had extolled his own prowess many times, saying that he was superior to nearly any swordsman walking the land. So Kenishi had learned from the best. The perfection of the movements and the finality of the act held a certain kind of beauty, almost like the majesty of nature. But he did not like the act of killing another man. It was ugly. 
his pride at winning now fought with remorse for taking the man's life. But the more he thought about it, the more he realized he could have done nothing else. Takanaga's arrogance and hatred had been his undoing. Martial prowess could lead one down the path of arrogance, and ultimately death, like the incident in the capital. There is always someone in the world that is stronger than you, and you must recognize that person when you meet him, his teacher had told him. All roads in the province seem to have led Kenishi to this thriving ancient city called Kyoto. He had been in the capital for two days, trying to find his way through the endless warrens of streets, palaces, and tenements. The spectacle was more than he could fathom. The avenues and alleys swarmed with richly dressed courtiers and nobles riding in palaquins, gruff samurai bristling with weapons and pride, merchants and artisans in their shops, commoners hurrying about their work, and beggars sitting in doorways with thin hands raised in supplication. He had never seen anything like it. He had never imagined that so many people existed in the world. Akao had been the braver one, fascinated by the vast array of smells wafting on the breeze and in the wake of every passerby. At first it had been frightening, incomprehensible. He had seen scores of shops with placards outside that he could not read, because he had no formal education. He had seen hundreds of people going about business he did not understand, because he had never encountered a city before. He was hungry, but he did not know how to get food. Thirsty, but he did not know where to drink. Weary, but he did not know where to sleep. He knew not a soul in the entire world. There was no one who could help them. And the women. The women were so beautiful and delicate, with their dark, sparkling eyes, full lips, and lovely throats. Many of them smelled so wonderful, like goddesses. He could only stare after them in helpless amazement. They were so much more beautiful than Haru. But why, then, did he still think of her so often? Even after what she had done to him, and it had been so many months since he had seen her. When he saw her face in his memory, her pretty eyes glinting with deceit, he felt such a strange mixture of emotions. Desire, regret, longing, shame. Kenishi pushed thoughts of her aside as he passed a trio of lovely girls who had caught him staring at them. They giggled at him covering their mouths with their hands as he moved away, blushing with embarrassment. He had never seen so many women before. Something in him wanted to touch them, but he did not know what else to do. More than once his loins stirred with an aching need he could not describe. So many women around him should make it easier for him to forget Haru, but somehow it did not. One night, Kanishi walked the dark streets. Akao walked close to him, brushing against his legs to control his nervousness. The dog's hair stood straight across his neck, and his tail was tucked against his back leg. They passed windows, 
and heard the musical sounds of women's laughter and the deep laughter of men, too. They sounded like they were having fun. He knew that he wanted to know women, to laugh with them, but he could not. He did not know how. Once he tried to enter a shop where he heard the sounds of merriment, but a huge man by the door grabbed him and threw him back out into the street. For a moment, anger flared in him, but the man slammed the door in his face before he could get up off the ground. He had been taught to recognize his own frustration and conquer it immediately. So he shrugged it off, picked himself up out of the dirt, and readjusted his ragged accoutrements. He moved on down the street, passing darkened shops wherein through the thin walls he heard strange, gasping cries or low, mumbled words. He found himself stopping to stare at the dark shapes silhouetted on paper screens, hidden from the eyes of the world. The streets here were dark and narrow, and some of the men he saw looked dangerous. They looked scruffy and unwashed, with prominent scars and hungry, treacherous looks. He saw one man who looked as if his nose had been sliced off years ago. Some wore fine clothes and large basket hats to conceal their features. He gave them a wide berth, but he did not fear them. His teacher had made certain of that. But in an unfamiliar place, it was best to be cautious. As he walked, he noticed a rough-looking man coming down the street toward him. He wore a fine silken kimono, trousers, and a wide-shouldered jacket emblazoned with some family crest but he had only one sword, a short sword, at his hip. Kenishi thought this was strange. As many samurai he had seen, particularly ones who looked as wealthy as this one, wore two swords. He often wished he had two swords like them, a mate for Silver Crane. The man's hair was immaculately styled in the traditional topknot, but his eyes were bloodshot, and his cheeks were flushed. He ignored Kanishi as he shouldered past him into a nearby shop. A sign above the shop door read, Souls of Samurai Polished Here. In his limited education, Kanishi had most quickly learned the characters that applied to him, and he felt a moment of pride at being able to read the sign. Standing in the invisible air of the man's passing breath, Kanishi caught the smell of sake. Peering around Kanishi's legs, Akao stood hunched and staring, emitting a low growl that only he could hear. "'Can you spare some coin, sir, for an old man?' came a voice from the shadows under the eave of a nearby house. Kanishi looked over to see an old man squatting there, with a small wooden cup in one raised hand. His skin was wrinkled and leathery, stretched across his skull, with prominent brows and cheekbones protruding from starvation. Pale white whiskers dusted his spotted jaw, and his mouth had collapsed into itself with the absence of teeth. Kanishi kept his distance, but as he looked at him, he felt a mixture of revulsion at his ugliness and compassion for his plight. "'I was once a ronin like you, boy,' the beggar said, "'until I lost my arm.' and my eye in battle. He raised the stump of his right arm, severed at the elbow, and lifted his face out of the shadows to reveal an empty, puckered eye socket. To make his appearance even more unpleasant, 
He had a large, purplish bulb in the center of his forehead that looked like a cluster of rotten plums stuck to his flesh and oozing down onto his brow. I am sorry, Kanishi said. I have no money. Some food, then. I'm sorry. I'm hungry, too. I have no food and no money to offer you. That's too bad to see one as young and strong as you with such troubles. Good luck to you, young man. The old man bowed his head to him. Kanishi bowed in return and moved on down the street. After he had gone about ten steps, a door opened, and a loud voice emerged behind him. Ah, what fine craftsmanship! It looks better than the day it was first polished. Kenishi turned and saw the rough-looking samurai standing in the street outside the shop he had entered. The samurai held aloft a katana that glimmered in the light of the street lanterns. Outstanding! The sword polisher, a man of approaching late years, stood in the doorway of his shop, bowing deeply. You are too kind to a man with skills as poor as mine. Nonsense, Masamoto. You do outstanding work. At that moment, the old beggar nearby said, Can a fine, strong gentleman such as you spare some coin for an old warrior? The samurai turned toward the old man, noticing him for the first time. Kanishi saw a look of disgust appear on the samurai's face. Then his expression furrowed with dark, cruel lines. He stepped closer to the old man, and with a lightning-quick motion slashed sideways. The old man's head tumbled off his shoulders, bobbling across the dirt. Kanishi stared in horrified fascination at the warrior's cold cruelty. The samurai glared imperiously as the old man's body slipped and fell sideways, dribbling dark red blood from the stump on his neck. His voice was thick with derision as he said, Thank you, old warrior, for allowing me to test my newly polished blade. You should have died on the battlefield like a true samurai and spared the world a helpless beggar. He turned to the sword polisher, who stood frozen with a look of queasy surprise and fear. Again, Masumoto, I must say you do outstanding work. I hardly felt the resistance of the spine. Trembling, the sword polisher offered him a cloth. To remove the blood, sir. The samurai took it and wiped away the little bit of wetness that clung to the gleaming steel. Then, with movements like liquid... The samurai sheathed his blade and thrust the scabbard into his obi. Suddenly, he turned towards Kenishi, his eyes glinting like red lanterns in the darkness. What are you staring at, boy? Kenishi stiffened for a moment. Then his master's training took over and he relaxed, prepared for battle. What? Have you no tongue? The samurai's voice grew angry. You do not approve of me testing my freshly polished blade? Kenishi's chin rose in defiance, but he said nothing. You have a sword, I see. Where did a whelp like you find a sword like that? Whom did you steal it from? Kenishi stiffened, and Akao's growl grew louder. A cruel leer split the man's face. 
Do you know how to use that weapon? Or do you just carry it around for show? Kenishi glanced down at the old man's head, lying on the dirt street, dribbling a thin trail of blood behind it, the body twitching as it lay crumpled on the ground. Such a senseless death. To have lived for so long and died so badly, so meaninglessly, at the hands of one so crass and cruel. The old man had deserved better. You have the look of a young cock ready for his first fight, said the samurai, squaring his body towards Kinishi with bloodlust in his eyes. Perhaps you should be taught your place. Kinishi thrust the hilt of his sword forward. He would not back down from a man such as this. Akao snarled and bared his teeth. Oh ho! A young cock you are then. A cock and a dog. But which is which? Perhaps you are both dogs. The samurai's words were jovial, but his tone was not. Perhaps you're one head too tall as well. Kenishi said nothing, but concentrated on the samurai's growing anger. The other man was accustomed to his harsh words causing others to back down from him. But Kenishi was not backing down. He planted his feet and tested his footing. The samurai started forward and snarled, Why, you little turd, I'll... Then another voice roared down the street, echoing between the shops and houses like the rumble of thunder. Goemon, what the hell are you doing? The samurai stopped in mid-step. He turned. Another figure approached. As the newcomer came into the light, Kenishi saw he was also a samurai. He was dressed in robes that were rich, but not opulent, and carried himself with the bearing of a man accustomed to command. He had strong, handsome features and sharp eyes. His gaze seemed to drill into Goemon, puncture him. The hostility bottled within Goemon began to seep away. Goemon said, Captain Mishima, I was just about to teach this rude young cock a lesson in manners. Captain Mishima stopped about two paces away from Goemon. You were doing no such thing. He neither said nor did anything to provoke you. I saw the whole thing. Goemon stiffened as if struck. Captain Mishima continued, his voice steady and controlled. You are a disgrace. You're nothing but a drunken bully, and you bring shame to our master. We are retainers to a noble house, some of the highest-ranked bushi in the capital. We live to a far higher standard than this. Your disgraceful behavior brings dishonor upon our master, and that I cannot allow. But shut up. I have been looking for you since nightfall. You have gone too far. The owner of a certain sake house sent word of your behavior tonight to my office. You debauch yourself with sake, opium, and whores, and then spend the rest of the night proving your superiority to boys and old men. He turned his penetrating gaze for an instant on the corpse sprawled in the dirt, and Kenishi saw a look of pity and sadness flicker through his eyes, quickly washed away by a controlled rush of anger. Madame Matsuko has powerful friends, and you have angered her with your ill-mannered treatment of her girls. You are a disgrace. 
I swear on my oath to our master that you will answer for this. Goemon's chin fell further and further toward his chest, his shoulders slumping at the verbal barrage. Captain Mishima continued, I would enjoy the chance to cut you down myself, but you are not mine to kill. Goemon's head rose at these words, and his body tensed again as he placed a hand on the hilt of his sword. Captain Mishima was unfazed, and his voice turned cold and deadly. Do you think you can fight me? You are drunk, and I can smell the opium on your clothes. Your death would be no better than his. He pointed toward the old man's corpse. Come with me now, and you may be allowed to regain your honor with Seppuku. It is not my decision to make, however. If it were, I would cut you down like the dog you are. Disobey me, and you will be hunted and executed like a criminal. He raised his arm and pointed back down the street in the direction he had come. Now go. Goemon released his sword hilt, lowered his head, and trudged down the street. Captain Mishima then turned to the sword polisher, who stood with his eyes downcast, embarrassed and frightened. Please accept my apologies, Masamoto. You will have no more trouble from Goemon. My master is grateful for your skilled service. The sword polisher bowed. Your, your master is too kind to someone with such poor skill as I have. Then Captain Mishima looked at Kenishi and gave him an appraising glance. Kenishi saw the calm intelligence in his eyes and a flash of respect. He blushed at the scrutiny. You are a brave young man, Captain Mishima said. Please accept my humble apologies for the behavior of my underling. Then he offered a quick bow. Kenishi was nonplussed. No one of such rank had ever spoken to him before with such courtesy. Nevertheless, he had the presence of mind to return the bow with a low bow of his own. Then Captain Mishima turned, thought for a moment, and said to the sword polisher, Masumoto, please polish this young man's weapon. My master would consider it a favor. The sword polisher almost hid his surprise. Then he bowed deeply. Of course, Mishima-sama. It would be my pleasure. Then the samurai captain followed Goemon down the street. After he had gone, the sword polisher turned to Kanishi and bowed with a feeble smile. Please, he said, allow me to polish your weapon. Unsure of what to say, Kanishi said, very well. Please do me this favor. He walked toward the sword polisher, untying his scabbard, then offered it up to the artisan with both hands. The sword polisher bowed low and received it with both hands. May I inspect it? Masamoto asked. Of course. The sword polisher drew the blade half out of its scabbard and inspected the steel in the lamplight. He gasped and let out a long, slow breath. Exquisite! What a fantastic blade! Kenishi's ears flushed with pride. It is called Silver Crane. Did you say? Ah, but it cannot be. It must be another sword of the same name, but, but look at the temper lying along the cutting edge. It looks like feathers. What technique! Kenishi could not help smiling. 
The sword polisher bowed again, deeper this time. It is my privilege to polish such a weapon. I will have it finished for you in ten days. Please return then. Until then, he stepped into his shop with Kanishi's weapon and returned with another weapon, a katana in its scabbard. Please take this sword to carry until you return. It is hardly more than a piece of trash compared to yours, but a warrior should not be weaponless. He bowed and offered the weapon with both hands. Kanishi bowed low and took it. Thank you for your kindness. I will return in ten days' time. He tried to ignore the headless corpse lying a few feet away as he slipped the loner katana into his sash. He turned to go, but the sword polisher stopped him. Please, wait a moment. Excuse me, but are you Ronan? I have no master. When did you last eat? Earlier today, Kanishi lied. The sword polisher nodded. He pointed down the street. Down that way is a small temple. The chief priest there. Well, you should speak to him. He might give you a place to stay for a time until the sword is finished. Tell him I sent you. Kanishi bowed again. Thank you. Again. It is nothing, the sword polisher said. As Kanishi walked away, Akao followed some distance behind him, busily inspecting the corner of every building and small piles of garbage or litter on the dusty street. Kanishi thought about Captain Mishima again. He could not remember his father, but he wished that he were like the captain, strong, confident, honorable, noble, and with the skill and conviction to back up his words. He had spent the next ten days waiting, Polishing a sword was a long and exacting process, just as important as the forging of the weapon. He felt both honored and honor-bound to have Silver Crane polished. Therefore, he could not have refused the offer. Besides, Ronin could rarely afford to have their weapons polished by craftsmen as renowned as Masamoto, unless they were successful criminals. Akao and he stayed at the temple, and the priest there gave each of them two rice balls every day. Kanishi accepted his with great discomfort, and Akao with great enthusiasm. He had done nothing to deserve this kindness, and the way the priest looked at him made him nervous. It would only be a matter of time before something bad happened, and he would be turned out. People who were kind to him always turned him out eventually. One of the few times the priest spoke to him, he said only, I was a ronin, once, until I entered the path of peace. You have a good heart. I can see that. But he did what he could to help the priest without being asked. He swept the walks clean of dust. He picked up fallen leaves and sticks and bits of detritus that drifted in with the wind and he gave a portion of his rice ball every day to the jovial stone god of the central shrine. The priest told him that was the god Hote, the laughing Buddha. Kanishi thought the god looked like a kind, jolly old man. When ten days had passed, he returned to the sword polisher's shop. Masamoto gave him back his sword, bowing deeply and offering it with both hands, an expression of profound solemnity on his face. The sword polisher said, 
It has been my great honor to polish this weapon for you, sir. May I ask, where did you get it? It was my father's weapon. Truly? Who was your father? Kenishi did not answer. He looked away, took a deep breath, then said, A great man. Masamoto looked at him for a long time, his searching gaze so intent that a prickle of uneasiness crept up the back of Kanishi's neck. The sword polisher said, Yes, a great man indeed. Please, young man, hear me now. One such as I well knows that some swords are special. They're smiths, their histories, their lineages, their masters, these things sometimes... Well, I don't know all the secrets of Silver Crane, but I do know this. Wield it well, and it will honor you. Kanishi could only stare at the sword polisher, puzzled, with a hundred questions on the tip of his tongue, but he did not dare to betray his own ignorance. Something in the man's eyes told him there was danger in the secrets he implied. Instead, he bowed and said, I thank you. You have been good to me. Then he took the sword and hurried away. Now that his sword was finished, Kenishi knew he could not stay with the kindly priest, so he left the temple. He was able to sell a few of his arrows for enough money to feed Akau and himself, but he could not keep that up for long. If he had been in the countryside, he could have fished, or hunted, or foraged, but here in the city there were no wild roots, no game, and no clean streams. The next day they moved on into the countryside, where he and Akau could find their own food. Kanishi had thought about Captain Mishima often since then, wondering how much like his father he was. Seeing such nobility and quiet strength filled him with an admiration he could not describe. Kanishi aspired to become a man like him, one who lived with such integrity and power. Those like Goemon and Takenaga were to be reviled and destroyed. Someday, Kanishi would find a master and he would prove himself worthy to that master with every fiber of his muscles, every drop of his blood, every bit of his strength. He wished his teacher had told him more about his father, so he would have more than his imagination and a few vague impressions. While he had been lost in his memories, the stars had disappeared behind thick, dark clouds, and silence had fallen like a blanket, as if in anticipation. The darkness would be a perfect time for him to move on without danger of being spotted. Akau seemed to have sensed his wakefulness. Move now? Yes. Let's go now. No one will see us in the dark. He sat up and began to roll up his blanket. Akau stretched and yawned, then sniffed the air. Rain. Kanishi nodded. The clouds boded rain today which would also help conceal them and obliterate their tracks. Those villagers would be less likely to be out searching in bad weather, more likely to be huddling indoors. A road lay below them, 
about the distance of a long bowshot, and they threaded their way down through groves of bamboo and trees, then resumed their trek in the early morning darkness. The day dawned gray and dismal, and the rain came with the daylight. It grew heavier and heavier, and before long he was soaked, along with everything he carried. Akao looked like a bedraggled, rust-colored rat, and his bony ribs sticking out and water dripping from his droopy ears. Kanishi told him as much. The dog responded with an insult that only dogs used. He had never seen such rain. It poured out of the sky in bucketfuls, a thick, pelting gray mass that chilled him to the bone. As always, he was hungry, too, and that did little to improve his foul mood. The cold mud of the road had almost numbed his feet, squishing between his toes in spite of the platform wooden sandals he was wearing. As he walked, they made sucking, slurping noises when they pulled from the muck. They passed by a lone farmhouse with a warm orange light glowing within, and he felt a pang of envy. The rain beat on his bare head, each drop like a tiny mallet, striking a rhythm that said, You have no home. You have no roof to shed the rain. Hate rain, Akau said. Can't smell. Only water and mud. A voice called out from somewhere nearby. Hey! Kanishi stopped and listened. The voice had been faint, coming from off the road. Over here! He turned and looked. Several dozen paces off the path was a small roofed shrine. Huddled under the roof, standing next to a stone statue of the shrine's god, was a soaked, disheveled woman. Her mud-spattered clothes clung to her like wet rice paper. Jizo will protect us, she said. You should get out of the rain. Kanishi saw no reason not to, so he joined her under the shrine's roof. He had to stoop and there was hardly enough room for both of them, Akau and the stone god, but the pattering against his skull had ceased. For that, he was grateful. Akau slunk in between them, shouldering a space around Kanishi's feet. He looked up at the woman, his tongue lolling in a smile. Thank you, he said. But she did not understand him. She edged away from him. The shrine god was in the shape of a youthful monk carrying a pilgrim's staff with six metal rings on the end. The air under the low roof was redolent with the scent of incense from the bowl of ashes at the stone god's feet. Beside the bowl was a cup full of sake and rice cake on a small earthen plate. He said to the woman, This god is Jizo? She nodded. Yes. She looked as if she were a few years older than Kanishi. Her clothes were so sodden and soiled that he could not judge their quality. Her face had been powdered and her lips rouged, and the rain had caused her makeup to streak and run, giving her a strange, warped appearance. Strings of hair clung to her face and hung in disarray around her shoulders. She clutched her hands in front of her chest, shivering. He had no blanket to give her that was not soaked through. He said, My foster father told me about Jizo. He is everywhere. He sometimes watches over travelers. 
He helps those who are mired in unhappiness and despair, yes? He told me about other gods, too. Kanon, the mother of compassion. As the rain pounded on the wooden roof, echoing strangely in the small, peaked cavity above his head, Kanishi remembered how his foster father had described Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. On a day like today, he began to understand why people called upon the gods and Buddhas for aid. His foster father had made them sound like wonderful, caring beings that helped the weak and the downtrodden. They sounded like the ideal that people should aspire to become. Precious little true kindness had come his way since he had left his foster parents in that little village far to the north, since they had turned him out. He said, You're shivering. I have a blanket, but it is surely soaked through. I've been walking for a while. She smiled and bowed. No need to trouble yourself. Thank you for thinking of my welfare. The sun will come out soon enough. They stood for a while in silence, listening to the slow, rhythmic surge of the rain's intensity. Then she said, Are you hungry? He looked at her, unsure how to answer. He was ravenous. Would you like a rice ball? She pulled a large one from somewhere inside her clothes. He looked at it. It was soggy from the rain, but his stomach roared. He could not take food from someone so poor. No. Please take it. I have two. See? She pulled out another. Please? Very well. Thank you. He took it, and he tried to resist devouring it in a single bite, like a cow would. He broke the rice ball in half and handed one part to the dog, who, as expected, devoured it in a single bite. Together, they ate their rice balls in silence. She smiled at him. He said, Are you traveling somewhere? No. This village is my home. He looked at her, puzzled. Then why don't you go to your home? Why are you standing in the rain? My house burned down not long ago. I have nowhere else to go. What about your husband? I don't have a husband. Then how do you live? She looked away, and a look of sadness and shame welled out of her features, like blood from a puncture wound. Her lip began to quiver. She bit her finger, stifling a sob. You are a boy. Are you so young you cannot see what I am? Otherwise, I would think you cruel. I didn't want to be cruel, he protested. Some of her despair drained away, replaced by a weak smile. Then perhaps I can tell you, and you will not think poorly of me. I lie down with men for money. Kanishi did not understand, but he nodded sagely. People do what they must to eat. Her smile broadened, mixed with a look of relief. He said, Perhaps Jizo and Kanon look over you because you do not have a house. You are kind to say so. But I fear I am doomed to live a hundred lifetimes as an unclean woman, or worse. You are kind to give me your food. Perhaps the kami and the gods will reward you for your kindness. Are you a pious man? she asked. 
Kanishi blinked, then shrugged. I don't know what that means. I know that I trust the kami to guide me, to protect me. If they grow angry with me, they will forsake me. That I know. I can see that you are poor, a ronin, and you have not starved either. I can see that you are not a bandit. You do not have the wolfish look of a bandit, and I have seen many. I am glad you don't think I'm a bandit. It was all he could think of to say. They stood in silence again, waiting for the rain to end. He watched her as much as he could without being rude, to see how her face remained calm and warm in spite of her shivering, and on a good day she might have been pretty. He thought about the kindness and nobility in her manner and bearing. He could only conclude that such virtues could exist in every layer of the world, from the most powerful samurai to the lowliest whore. So strange. But what were those qualities that made them to be admired? He could not put words to them. He just knew he respected them. He knew them when he saw them. But that was all. Finally, after about an hour, the rain diminished. Then he pulled out his heavy coin purse and dumped half of the contents into his hand. The woman's eyes bulged with surprise, but he saw not a trace of avarice in them. He stuffed the handful of coins into his own pouch, then wrapped up the rest and held it out to her. Please, he said. She shook her head and cringed away from him. No, I couldn't. Please, take it. You will be doing me an honor if you do. I have much to atone for. And you don't have to lie down with me. She refused again. But when he insisted a third time, she relented and gingerly took the coin purse. She bowed low, thanking him profusely. He bowed in return. And then they went their separate ways. He never saw her again. And he never learned her name. Thank you for listening to Heart of the Ronin, Volume 1 of the Ronin Trilogy by Travis Heerman. Volume 2, Sword of the Ronin, and Volume 3, Spirit of the Ronin, are available now on your favorite audiobook platform. Please visit TravisHeerman.com, look me up on social media, or send me an email. I would love to hear what you think about the story. <laughs>